Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former Seattle Mariner head athletic trainer, Rick Griffin. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I'm joined by a man that's patched me together more than a few times. He spent 38 years as a Seattle Mariner head athletic trainer, dating back to 1983. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick Griffin. Griff, did you ever think there'd come a day when Boone's interviewing Griffin? Uh, Honestly, no. Could not even possibly imagine that. Unless was in a bar having a drink talking about something besides baseball. That's right. That's right. Worst hey, worst on-field injury you've ever seen. On-field, Donnell Nixon. Uh, and this actually four days after I've been hired, ran into a wall in Sun City, Arizona, after Renee Lashman and I walked the field and noticed that the outfield wall was made out of bricks. Not only was it made out of bricks, but about every six inches, one of the bricks was turned halfway, pointing out. And I'm going, what, why would anyone ever design a stadium with a brick outfield wall? And we told all of the outfielders, do not run, do not get near the wall, do not do anything to endanger yourself. And Donnell Nixon was a rookie, and he's an extremely fast player. He's Otis Nixon's brother. And uh, I think he was trying to prove that he was the fastest guy in baseball. And he went off in the gap to try to catch a ball. And he ran into the wall running full speed. And one of those bricks that was sticking out hit his, hit his leg, hit his tibia. He had a compound fracture of his tibia and fibula. And his ankle was turned around sideways. And both of the bones were sticking through the skin. So that was uh, pretty gruesome. And you were right there to tell him, hey, you're, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, that's see, exactly I, what I did. <laughs> I, see, I thought you were gonna. I, I thought you were gonna bring up the Holman. Remember when Holman got drilled in Texas? Yeah, that. But that Booney. That he, I mean, he he walked off the field and he really didn't have anything. I mean, he had. A, we took him to the hospital. And he got a cat scan. He had a concussion. And he had some facial fractures. But I mean, when you walk out there and see two bones sticking through somebody's leg and blood, and and I mean, that's that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. All right, Griff, all the talks we've had over the years, we've known each other for what? I can't even count anymore. 32 years. Uh, it's a while. We never got to this. Where'd you grow up? And what were you like? I grew as a up. Kid? What was a little Rick well, Griffin was, like? Well, I was, uh, I, I grew up in Brigham City, Utah, which is a very small town in northern Utah, North Salt Lake. It's more of a farming community, ranching community. Uh, most of, the, most of the teams we would go and play in sports, they were kind of afraid of the country boys because I had 4,000 in my high school, but my town only had 16,000, but everybody bust in from all the little farms and all the, all the towns around. And uh, I love to, I love sports. Uh, I love to hunt and fish. My dad was a professional guide. He guided uh, goose hunters and duck hunters. So I did that a lot growing up. I played football. I played basketball. I ran track. I was probably best in track. I was very fast. I was actually called the, the fastest white guy in northern Utah. I don't know why they said that, but they did. Uh, but that didn't last very long. 
And uh, I, I just love sports. And I grew up in high school. I was a good student. And uh, my first job, I was 14 years old, washing dishes in a greasy cafe. And so that, that was pretty much it. And I went to college at Utah State. Well, and what point, what point in your life did you realize that being an athletic trainer was actually a thing? Oh, I, I, Booney, I had no clue what an athletic trainer was. In my high school, there was not an athletic trainer. I mean, not like they have them now. And, and I remember I sprained my ankle once in, in high school, and the coach taped it for me. And at halftime, my ankle was bleeding, and I had to take it off. But, again, I didn't know anything like athletic trainer. So I went to uh, Utah State my freshman year. I was sitting on the sidelines at the spring football game, and – a wide receiver caught a pass and he was about to go over the end zone and a guy tackled him and you heard this loud crunch and he had blown out his knee and he was laying on the ground rolling around and, and uh, this guy in a white suit, he looked like he came from a vanilla ice cream truck. He got all dressed in white and he went out there and started moving the guy's leg around and I, I was sitting with a bunch of people and go, who is that guy? What is that guy doing? And somebody behind me said, oh, that's their athletic trainer. And I, I said, what the heck do they do? And he goes, oh, they take care of the players when they get hurt. And I, I love sports, and I was in pre-med. And so the next day, I, I took it upon myself to go find that guy. And I went down into the training room and asked him if I could talk to him. And I went into his office and talked to him for about 30 minutes. And next thing I knew, he, he was letting me come into the training room and watch what they did. And uh, at the end of end of that year, he said, you know, I checked up on you and I found out you are a pretty good student. He said, I got a scholarship open next year for a student athletic trainer. And if you want it, I'll give it to you and it'll pay for your tuition. And I said, I'm in. So for the next three years, I was a athletic trainer there at Utah State. And we had we had really good teams in. Uh, we had really good football teams, good basketball teams. Uh, so I was lucky to be around some good sports. And then. I graduated from there and moved to Oregon and got my master's degree at the University of Oregon. And that's kind of how I started the whole athletic training deal. But I didn't know anything existed like that growing up. Isn't it funny, though, when we sit here and we refer to it as the athletic trainer? See, I almost feel funny yeah. saying athletic trainer because it's Griff. It's he's my trainer. It's never the yeah. athletic trainer, but we're, we're being proper here on the Boone podcast. Uh, and, and that right. was that kind of answered my next question, which was, you know, you kind of have to have in the beginning getting into this field, I would assume a mentor and, and kind of that guy you went down on the field, got you kickstarted in, in this field. Next thing you know, you're on the sidelines. Then it's like, OK, when did you set your mind like, all right, college is ending. Am I going to stay here at Utah? Or, or how am I going to get, how is Rick Griffin going to get to where he wants to get? You end up getting the big league job with the Mariners eventually. But but what was your mindset and how were you going to get there? Booney, I, I, I am the luckiest person on the planet in terms of the way my career evolved because I never, ever envisioned being in the big leagues. It wasn't a goal. I didn't ever think it, would, it was even possible. I, was, uh, I graduated from the University of Oregon, and I was teaching high school, and I had the summer off. And you'll laugh at this because you're going to know this guy's name, I'm going to say. 
I had the summer off. It was going to be my first summer off, and I was in Oregon, and I was going to go camping and go up in the woods and do some fishing. And I was in the training room at the University of Oregon, and the phone rang, and we were doing a coaches clinic for a bunch of coaches there in Eugene. And the head trainer, his name was Dean Adams. He said, hey, Griff, answer the phone. I got a call coming in. I mean, there were no cell phones back then. There were no voicemails. So he goes, get the phone. And so I picked up the phone, and the guy on the phone was Chief Bender of the Cincinnati Reds. And Chief Bender was their farm director for like 40 years. And he, he goes, uh, hey, I'm calling the University of Oregon because they know they have an athletic training school there. And I'm trying to find a trainer that would be interested in, in working our, our rookie ball team. And I go, well, tell me about that job. And so he, he went and spent like five minutes and told me, hey, they play 70 games and it's low level. And most of the guys are 17 to 20 years old. And it's just a, you know, it's a summer gig. And I go, I'll do it. And he goes, who the hell are you? And I said, I said, my name's Rick Griffin. I'm 22. I'm certified and I have a master's degree. And he goes, you're hired. And so, Booney, that's how I got in baseball. That is how I got in baseball. If I would have been in the training room, I would have been maybe still teaching high school or I might have been working track and field with the Olympics, which I did a lot of prior to that. And so I did that that summer. And my manager was Greg Riddock, who I know you also know. And so for four years, I taught high school. And in the summer... I, I was the trainer for the Eugene Emeralds, and Greg Gridock was my manager all four years. And back then, it was just the trainer and the manager. There was nobody else. I threw batting practice. I, I taped ankles. I did whatever I could to help him, and, and I had a blast. It was a blast. So I did that for four years. Yeah, and that minor league experience for you, um, well, not unlike what a player goes through. I mean, <laughs> down in the minor leagues, it's no. like fend for yourself, survive, and and maybe one yeah. day you'll get out of there and you and you'll get to the big leagues. And we all went through it. But tell the tell the people out there listening. I know, I know, because we you you broke in in '83. I I came yeah. along years later, but it was a similar time. You know, it's not like 2022 yeah. Yeah. where now we have these state-of-the-art stadiums. Kids in A-ball aren't just forced to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches like we were. Um, I remember, yeah. Griff, I remember A-ball with the Mariners when I first signed in 1990. I went to Peninsula, Virginia, and Lovinger was my trainer. I believe, right? Was it Lovinger? Alan His name Lovinger. Was, yeah, Al, Al Lovinger. I hired him from UNLV. Big Al Lovinger. Right. Yeah. And he was he funny. Dry sense of humor. But, <laughs> but, but the thing about that people don't understand, you know, the big leagues, when you become the head trainer, you have, you have a staff around you, and, which you can, yeah. you know, you can kind of diversify your work and, and put off some of some responsibilities to others. And the minor leagues, no, no, you're wearing several hats. I remember we'd be on the road in A-ball in that Carolina league, and not every road team had a clubhouse. So it was one of those saddle up, get dressed at the, at the Motel 6, drive over to the yard at 3 in the afternoon, sit in the sun, wait till you have the field to hit batting practice, finish batting practice, maybe grab something to eat in the dugout, get ready for infield, take infield, wait where they get the field ready, then play a game all in uniform, get back on the bus in uniform, go back to the hotel and now go take a shower, take all your clothes, put them into a bag and go to Al Lovinger's room and throw it yeah. on his bed because he's responsible for the laundry. So in the minor leagues, it's a different ball game. Yeah, you, you just described exactly what I did, except, except Greg Riddock, the manager and I, would go do the laundry. 
and we would go to like a Seven Eleven or we'd go somewhere and we'd buy a six pack of Coors Light and we would go do the laundry and it would it was a three beer deal. We would we would sip on three Coors Lights and we would do the players' laundry and and we had to. One time we had to go from Victoria, Canada to Boise and the bus broke down and we, we arrived in, in Boise at like 6.45 and we didn't have time to do the laundry. So imagine your uniform from the night before in a bag all watered up and who knows what the heck grew in there overnight. And then, and then we had to open up the bag and tell everybody to get their uniform and put it back on and dirty and moist and gross. And they had to play that game with, with that uniform. And then after that game, we finally got them washed. But, I mean, you described what I did. Go. All right. Hey, you got to describe what my life was as the athletic trainer in the minor leagues, and it was for for the whopping salary of $500 a month. But but I really loved it, and I enjoyed it, and I had a great guy to be with, Greg Riddock, and it was fun. I very much enjoyed it. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout-out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Thanks, Boone. Hoops fans, the latest offer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is too good to pass up. I'm talking between the legs, 360 windmill good. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. It's that simple. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still take your shot at a big payday. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Basketball Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOON, B-O-O-N-E, bet just $1 on any NBA team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's promo code Boone at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21 plus minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Void where prohibited. Minimum $5 deposit. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the TN Redline 1-800-889-9789. In Connecticut, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, call 877-H-O-P-E-N-Y or text H-O-P-E-N-Y 467-369. And now back to my interview with Rick Griffin. So we get down to the minor leagues. Uh, give me a little snapshot of, of how, when you got that first job, when you got to the big leagues. I know you, you were named the head, head mariner trainer in 83. Were you ever an assistant, Griff? Uh, no, Boone. Yeah, I was never an assistant. Um, and actually, I was kind of out of baseball for one year. I ended up getting hired to work at a sports medicine clinic in Seattle. And when I moved to Seattle, because I'd worked those four you know, minor league years, I, I kind of missed baseball. So I, I did kind of what I did at Utah State. I wasn't afraid to call people and ask them if I could help out or do something. If I heard no, I heard no. But I called, the, at the time, the head trainer for the Seattle Mariners, whose name was Gary Nicholson. And I asked him if I could come down and help him out or if he needed any help. And, and uh, I said I, who I was, and I told him where, who I was working for and what I did. And he goes, yeah, come down. He goes, I don't know if you knew this, but the Seattle Mariners are the only team in professional baseball that doesn't have a full-time assistant. He goes, I don't have an assistant, so if you want to come help me, 
please do. So I went down there about 20, 25 times, but I didn't really do very much because the, you know, if you don't, if, if the players don't know you, they don't want you touching them. They don't want you working on them because they don't know who you are. But I did, you know, little stuff, clean the whirlpools and put on ice wraps and stuff like that. But, uh, then that, that, that year he told me he was going to quit and he goes, you should apply for my job. And I just started laughing. I said, they're not going to hire me. I'm only 26 years old. And I was in rookie ball. He goes, that, it doesn't work that way. That's like a player going from rookie ball to the big leagues. That happens like once in, in, in a blue moon, Eric Davis and Tony Gwynn. I mean, that doesn't happen. And, uh, so I said, well, I'll apply, but that's, that's not going to happen. And I don't know, you know, exactly how it did, but ended up getting a job and, uh, got it in 83 and stayed there for a long time. You know, and I was thinking about it before we, we sat down for this podcast, and I thought, wow, Griff is one of, and now, you know, with 30 teams in the big leagues, there's only 30 of you. There's 30 head trainers. How competitive yeah. is that job? Even the time you were coming in, like you said at the top of the show, you know, you were you were the luckiest person in the world. You seem to be at the right time or right place at the right time. But you're only one of 30. There's only 30 of those jobs. How competitive is that? Is that position? It, I was told that when, when I filled out my, my application and my resume, I was told that 140 people applied for that job, for the job that I ended up getting, 140. And I, I, after they hired me, I asked the guy, I said, you know, thank you for, for hiring me and thank you for giving me this job. But I said, I just got to ask you, why did you pick me? And he, and he was very, he's very, very honest. And it was Dan O'Brien, the, the senior Dan O'Brien. He said, I hired you for three reasons. He said, number one, he said, you have great references. One of them was Greg Riddock. He said, and he couldn't have been more complimentary of you. He said, the second one, I like the fact that you work with Olympic caliber athletes. Because one of the things he asked me, he said, you know, some baseball players can be a little bit like prima donnas. And he said, how would you handle them? And my answer to him was, I worked with Olympic caliber sprinters and I worked two Olympic trials. And I said, if I can work with those guys, I can work with anybody. And, I, and he liked that answer. And then he said the third thing, he goes, I think you're young enough to where you haven't already made a lot of mistakes. I think you can grow into this job and you're, you'll learn and you'll mature. And I, I just like, I liked, uh, he said, I liked your personality. And so, you know, that's, that's why I got the job according to him. All right. We're going to, we're going to switch gears here a little bit. I obviously I know what you guys do, but I want to take the fans uh, behind the scenes of a big league training room. So okay. average day, middle of the summer, we're, we're 50 games in. What's your, what's your day look like home game? What time you get to the yard? Because, you know, I was always at the yard early. I'm there 2, 2.30, but you're kind of there, like, turning the lights on with Teddy Walsh, yeah. who we had on the program recently. Right. It's, uh, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's the first game or the 162nd game. I mean, they're basically, the, the days are all the same. It's just one's a day game and one's a night game. But my typical day was I usually got there about 12 or 12.15 in the afternoon, and then the first thing I have to do is I, I have to get the whirlpools ready for the guys that are coming in and need to get the whirlpools. And you have to get them, you have to start them out at about 110 degrees because they need to sit for about four hours, three to four hours before the guys start coming in. And you want it to be about 105, 104 when they get there. And then you have to make the ice towels for the pitchers, which usually you make about 45 of those. Then you have to do paperwork. You have to do the, the doctor's logs. Then you have to go meet with the manager and let him know who, who may or may not be available for that day. So now it's about 2 o'clock, and then the players start coming in, and you're doing rehab on the guys who are on the disabled list, 
guys that need early treatment are coming in and you work on everybody till about four o'clock. And then uh, back in the day, I used to lead the stretching uh, up until, geez, uh, a long time till mid nineties. Um, and so then we'd go out and we'd stretch, take batting practice. Batting practice ended about 5.15 and we'll come in and I would grab a quick snack. More than, most of the time I would just come back and grab something and kind of eat on the run, walk back to the training room. Uh, do more treatments. And then in my particular case, I worked with the pitchers quite a bit. And so I always stretched out the starting pitcher. I usually started that about quarter to six for a seven o'clock game till about 6.10, 6.15. And then it seemed like I uh, worked on Buner for about an hour and then the game would start. And then, <laughs> then I'd, uh, you know, during the game, I might go up and work on some rehab guys, but most of the time I was on the bench during the game. And after the game was over, usually 10, 10.30, the players would come in, we'd do more treatments, uh, that usually lasted for about an hour. Then you, by the time you get the training room cleaned up and do all the paperwork, it's 12, 1230. And then I would usually get home about one to one fifteen at night. So it was like a 12 to 14 hour day, pretty much every day. Yeah. But you also got to listen to Boone bitch about if, if he had a rough <laughs> night or, or if he had a good night, you were going to hear about it. And, and I wasn't the only one you had to hear about it from a bunch of people. It's so interesting. The dynamic of that training room, it's you have an assistant, uh, you know, in, in my second tenure in Seattle, uh, you know, we had one of my favorites, me and you both know him well, Iggy son. He came over yep. uh, from, son, Japan, yeah. from Japan with Kazuhiro Sasaki. He ended up being my designated foot prober and he taught me the, yep. uh, the, the ropes on Boone. Here's, <laughs> he used to tell me, Boone, feet, very important. Very important. And I remember the first day Iggy worked on my feet and he said, one pressure and man, one pressure hurt. And, and by, you know, a couple weeks into the season, oh, two pressure, you're getting better. By the end of the year, I was five pressure and I didn't even feel it. But man, he, he did. Oh, he I had know. some, he was such a good guy. I mean, that, you know, your, your clubhouse, I, I was there in two separate times when I was a kid in the early nineties. And, and you mentioned Jay, Buner and and Chris Bazio and and Norm Charlton and and you know Kenny Griffey and and all those guys it, it's almost like a soap opera in the training room for for those of you oh. out there listening to the Boom podcast it's comedy I mean the characters just come in throughout the day and it's like I I don't even know how to explain your position because you're just kind of the guy in the room and there's just banter going off and somebody's going to come in, throw some stuff at you. You kick it to someone else who's in the room. They kick it back and it's nonstop. I mean, that's some entertaining, entertaining stuff. It It could be, you could have a sitcom and never, not one single thing would be baseball on the field. It could be a sitcom in the training room and you just described it. I mean, every day, everything, I, I kept a journal for 27 years and I wrote down funny stuff. I mean, I wrote down, I mean, I, when I get older, I'm going to sit there and open up a nice bottle of wine. And I mean, I wrote down so many funny things that I know I'm going to look back and I've forgotten so many of them, but you could literally make, it would have to be an, on HBO because it would have to be, you know, you wouldn't be able to put it on normal TV because you, you'd want to be able to, to put everything on there that actually happened. So everybody could laugh about it, but it could be a TV show. It really could. First pitch, where are you? On the bench. 
I always did the first three innings on the bench. And the main reason is most of the injuries happened in the first two innings of a game uh, because they're, it's either the pitcher isn't going to be right, he's going to get hurt, or somebody's going to pull a muscle the first couple of innings because they're just not completely warmed up. So first three innings, I was always on the bench. Then I was always on the bench the last three innings. The middle innings, I usually try to go up and do paperwork and work on the rehab guys. But do, do you somebody – a trainer has to be on the bench at all times, Correct. Yes, you have to have you have to have one trainer on the bench at all times. And is that is yeah. is that go for batting practice too? In case something happens yep. on the field, is there always one yep. of you guys out there? I mean, because you may yeah, have something to do. To so. Go ahead. Yeah, you've always got to have one guy on the bench all the time during any time. There's a, any even even if there's somebody out like throwing a bullpen or out just doing extra work, you're supposed to have somebody out there. Uh, and and that's something that we you know always tried to do a good job because as, as time went on, I ended up having getting to have have uh, two assistants plus a Japanese athletic trainer. So we were we were always always had somebody on the field all the time. All right, Griff, this will this will be a little this will be fun. We're gonna role play a little bit, and I'm gonna use myself right. Boone because it is my show. It is the Boone podcast. So you should. I'm gonna give you the scenario. Boone just got hit by a pitch. Hit hit me pretty good, but you know me. I'm gonna I'm gonna sell it. I'm gonna oversell it. I want that pitcher to feel bad, like he really hurt me, because <laughs> that'll open up the inside corner for me next at bat. So I'm gonna go into my full, you know, cardiac arrest. I'm on the ground, whether it hurt or it didn't. Here comes Rick. Take it from there. What? what how's it gonna go? I'll still be me. Go ahead. Well, if I know it's you, I also know exactly what you just described. You're going to be putting on a little bit of a show. And I'm, I'm able to judge from seeing how solid it hits you, whether it got you real good or not. But you're, you're obviously role-playing a little bit and wanting the guy to feel it. So, you know, I'll go out there and talk to you a little bit and say something to the umpire, maybe glance at the pitcher, give him a dirty look, and then I'll just slowly walk you down to first base. And then when we're, nobody's around, I'll go, how bad did it get you? And then you're going to let me know. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you say, oh, it hardly got me at all, but I got to sell it. And then I'll, I'll go out and all the way to first base and work your arm around a little bit, take some time, <laughs> talk to you, let the first base umpire know you need a little bit more time. And then, uh, you know, by the time everybody knows that you really got crushed and I'll find the lead and then everybody will clap for you and give you a standing ovation and you're ready to go. <laughs> See, that's the stuff you can't get. And, and fans love that stuff because <laughs> – you know, for us, other sports, we are always wondering what's going on in that in that huddle. What's you know, we know what goes on in our you know our version of a huddle, and it is it's a lot of that. It's you know, it may have gotten me good, and I'll say, Griff, it's freaking smoked me. And, it and crushed it's, me. All right, how are we gonna do? How how are we doing? I'm fine. You know, I'm gonna be fine. You just got to give me a minute here, and it is it's role playing, and we're going back and forth. And, and that's just the little nuances inside the game that I, that I find uh, really cool. And I, and I love when we're able to share that with people to kind of bring them in. And, uh, you know, I'll give you another one, too. Mid-game pitcher, you know, you, you can notice something's off with your starter. Uh, catcher calls for you. Uh, here you come out of the dugout. Boom. Give me, give me a scenario, usually how, how a scenario like that comes into play. You know, eventually I'm going to come in from second base and go, what's going on? But before I get there, what's, what's going on? Well, I, that's the one thing I really I try to pride myself on is knowing the pitchers because every 
every pitcher has a certain delivery and their mechanics are a certain way. When you notice something off, you, you need to get out there right away. Cause first of all, you don't want him to get hurt. But then secondly, you don't want him to, you know, give up four or five runs trying to march our way through, through the inning. And so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, run out there you have to call time and tell the umpire first because you can't just run out you got to say time or it'll count as a visit and then he's going to kind of follow you out there and I'll, I'll walk out there and ask him what's going on and I might say hey I noticed you're dropping your arm down and you're not following through is your shoulder okay how do you feel and he might you know he might some guys like if it's Bosio, he's going to say I'm fine what the hell are you doing out here and go back and sit on the bench. And uh, but if it's somebody else, I might I might say I notice that, that you're not throwing normally. And he you know, I say yeah, but I got some tightness in the back of my shoulder. If they say that, then you know I'll, I'll motion to the dugout for the manager to come out, or he may already be out there, and I'll just say he's done because we're not we're not going to mess around and we're not going to play a game. Or if they say oh I'm a little stiff, or I feel okay. Might might say we'll throw a couple of pitches. Let's just make sure. And then after that, then we'll have a discussion. But the thing I always try to do is you try to develop trust with those players, with the pitchers, especially, and I mean, even position players, like when you had the bad heel, you know, you would tell me you're okay, even though look, you look like a wounded deer running. But if they tell you they're okay, I always, a baseball player always tells you one level worse than it really is. If they tell you they're okay, they're not really okay. They're just good. If they tell you they're great, they're just okay. If they say, man, I've never felt better then that means, Oh, you know, this is, I feel pretty good, but you gotta, you gotta take it down a notch when they're talking to you because they're, they're trying to downplay stuff. And that's why you need to know who they are. And each personality is different and you gotta be able to read them, but you don't want to, I mean, it would be embarrassing to let a guy tell you he's okay. Cause you notice something and the, and the catcher calls you out there and then you go out and the next pitch, he throws the pitch and, you know, then he collapses or, you know, grabs his arm and he blows out his rotator cuff or his elbow. I mean, you want to get him out of there before they hurt themselves. And that's, that's your job. Don't let that happen. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, you know, in this, in the scenario, how much, how much did your, how you were going to approach a situation depend on the, the, the player or the personality that you're about to deal with? Oh, big time. Like, you know, I'll give you an example. Norm Charlton. I mean, Norm Charlton could have a nail through his forehead, and he's still going to pitch, and he's going to tell you he's okay every single time, no matter what. He's never going to come out of the game, irregardless, no matter what. And then you got to go out there and say, hey, Normie, look, I know, I know that you're the sheriff. I know you're the toughest guy on the planet, but I'm seeing you throwing. You used to throw 95, and you're throwing 84. I said, something's not right. I said, you need to come out. And, you know, that, that, that's where you got to be able to talk to the guy and they have to trust you and, and listen to you. And then sometimes the manager, like in our case, Lou would, Lou would look at me and say, what do you think? And I'd say, get him out. And he'd just take him out. Lou was awesome about listening to me. And, and we had a good relationship. And if I told him, I thought like a lot of times Edgar, I think Edgar can do this. I think he's okay. You know, he can manage this. And so we'd leave him in. But if he asked me and it was a pitcher, I never, never would want a guy to take a chance if it was a pitcher because the, the chances on a pitcher getting hurt bad are way higher than a, a position player are, you know, running. How important is your relationship with uh, the manager in the front office? Well, this, the manager is the guy that you're talking to every single day. And, you know, Booney, I know you know this, but I had 18 managers. I had 18 managers. That is a lot of managers because – Sometimes the manners weren't the most patient people in the world. They, they fired guys, you know, pretty quickly. And so I, I never really got to know a lot of my managers. Like I wish I would have, like I was so lucky I had Lou for 10 years and Lou and I, 
I mean, we could, we could read each other. I mean, we knew what the other person was thinking a lot of the times. And, and so I met with Lou before and after every game, I sat with him on plane. Sometimes we'd talk about things. We'd talk about lineups. He would ask me, you know, do you think a guy needs a day off? Do you think we need to put Macklemore somewhere? Cause we got this guy that can play everywhere. Let's, let's keep our guys fresh. He was phenomenal. That was what I think Lou is better than any manager I've ever had is reading the players and wanting to know the information. I'm not talking about stats, but he wanted to know, what do you think about a guy's body? Cause I want to keep guys fresh and I want to rotate guys. And he, he was phenomenal doing that. And that, that's why the relationship between an athletic trainer and a manager is, is crucial and important. And he, he told me one year, he said, he said, you're worth five to seven wins a year. Because you're, you, the decisions and the things you do and the things you help me do are worth five to seven uh, wins a year. And that, that meant a lot to me to, to know that he felt that the input I gave him made him made me think I could, I could make a difference in five to seven wins. But then on the other hand of it, if you, you know, you have, and I'm not going to say the person's name because I think you know who he is, but then if you have a manager that thinks he's smarter than everybody and he doesn't listen to anybody and he's going to do whatever he wants and knows everything and th- it doesn't matter what you tell him, then, then that's, a, that's, that's like hell. It's just a nightmare. And uh, it, it was th- those kind of situations are tough for any athletic training because you're trying to you're trying to protect the players, but you're also trying to get them out there so they can win ball games and and have a good livelihood and make money for themselves and their families. But if if you don't get the opportunity to participate in any of the decision making, that that can make things really tough. And the the front office is a totally different story because the front office a lot of the stuff you're doing in the front office is they're consulting you about potential trades and you have to review medical files and you have to go back and look at you know injury history of players coming over from other teams that you may not know at all, but you're looking at everything on a piece of paper and maybe asked to call up an athletic trainer or strength coach to find out about a player's health. And then you got to make a recommendation. Yes or no. Would you do a trade based on what you know? You know, and sometimes you say no when they really want to do it. And they, they, they're, they're not forcing you to say yes, but they're like really making you, why do you not think this is a good idea? And then you got to stand your ground because if you don't, it comes over and it backfires on you. Then it's then it's your fault, and then you're not going to be there very long if you do that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's your word. It's your name. Uh, and I yeah. never thought about this when I was playing, and I was thinking about it while while I was getting ready for for this interview. The player confidentiality and the relationship that that player the players have with their trainer, and it's a fine line. And when you're a player and you're going through it, especially in, in my generation, I really didn't think about that because, you know, me, I, I not that I was tough to deal with, but I, I, I was going to tell you, Griff, I'm fine no matter what I'm playing. And and you don't think about, well, shoot up, maybe I'm putting him in a bad position right here because he knows that I'm probably not revealing as much as it really is. So that puts you in a position where I got to make a call. I don't want to piss, you know, Booney off or, or whoever it may be, name a player, it doesn't matter. At the same time, if he can play, we need to have our regular guys out there. How is that walking that fine line and how has that changed uh, over time? It's, 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 it's kind of like there's, you know, there's the game within the game uh, of the whole thing of baseball, but the game within the game with the trainer and the player is, is it comes back to 
trust and communication. You you might you might tell me that you're ready to play and that you can play, and then you and I have gone out and done, done a bunch of drills. And because I know you and I know what you're capable of, and I see what I'm seeing now, and I know that's not Brett Boone, then I'm going to sit you down and we're going to talk, and I'm going to give you the risk reward talk, and we're going to talk about hey, we still got 85 games, and we got we got two games and an off day. If you rest two more days plus the off day, plus the next day, that's almost four more days off. I might say, listen, let's be smart and let's let's rest and let's rehab and get you ready to go. And in four days, then you can play the rest of the 75 games we got left and not worry about anything. Instead of you trying to tell me that you want to, you know, macho and tough your way through one more game. So that's how I would handle it was I always tried to, to be a really good communicator, put everything out there. But then if we did that and you looked me in the eye and you told me that you could play and because I know you and I trust you, then I'm, I'm, that's it. That's it. I, I, I would never say a guy can't play once if he's telling me he, he can't play. And I believe it. And then I go tell the manager, I said, hey, he's ready to go. And I'm not going to sit there and, and go through the whole scenario and tell him how we make the eggs and cook the sausage and make the hash browns. I'm just going to say he's ready to go. He's ready to play. And that's it. And if it backfires, then that's not on the player. That's on me. Cause, but, but I always had a good relationship with every player, and I trusted them, and I know they trusted me, and we communicated well. And after we went through all those scenarios – and, and and the final decision was we're ready to play. But most of the time they would choose the, you know what, you're right. I got two more days in that off day and three days in three days, I'm going to feel great and let's be smart. Or you might say, okay, let's, let's do that. But how about if I, if I'm ready to pinch hit, I'll pinch hit. Yeah, that's great. That gives you an option that makes you feel good as a player because you still have a chance to make a contribution to the team winning the game. Because the hardest thing is for a player, you know, this Boonies, when, when you can't play and you know you want to play and you're sitting on the bench and the team's down by one run and you might be the difference maker, but now you, you know, you've already been told, well, you're done, you're not playing today, you're out. But at least if you can pinch hit, maybe you can help out. That's going to keep you in the game and keep you motivated. And a lot of times that happened and it worked a lot. Yeah, the mental side of the game, you're, you're, without a doubt. I mean, if it's, it's a shutdown situation, like shutdown, shutdown, you do, you feel helpless. You know, I was fortunate yeah. enough in my career only to have a few injuries, but the times I was down, man, I felt like, you know, I went from that guy that was in the lineup every day to, I felt like I was getting in everybody's way and I'd come into the training room and it wasn't the same. Cause it's like, man, I, what am I doing here? I can't help anybody. I got to get off the table. Let the guys that are going to play tonight, get on the table. Yeah. It is, it's a real, uh, until you go through it, it's it's a real different experience for a player, and and when you're healthy a lot, uh, you take it for granted. But it is it's kind of a helpless situation when you can't contribute and can't be in there. Yeah. Difference between and, hurt. And then when you go, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say when, and, and then if you get stuck on the disabled list, and that's even worse because now, I mean, you're on the disabled list now for 15 days. Now you know for 15 days, and you, I don't want to use use the word worthless, but. I mean, that's something you would say. I feel worthless. I mean, I'm worthless for 15 days. What am I doing here? And then, then the trainer's job is, hey, you got to motivate him. You got to say, hey, man, and we're going to work hard for 15 days, and every day you're going to get better. You're going to get stronger. And when you come back, you're going to be better than you were before. And so you got to, you always got to keep that mental edge going, even if you're on the disabled list or when you're hurt. Because some guys go in a dark hole, man, when they go on the disabled list. They go into a dark, deep hole, and they, they shut down, and they lose it, and they, it takes takes them a long time to come back and you can't let that happen. If you can, if there's anything that a trainer can do 
that's what you can't let happen because that's that's not a place you want one of your guys going. Difference between being hurt and being injured. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, and, and, and I know I, I can probably I can probably answer a part of it for you. Depends on the play. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure that you can probably answer the whole. <laughs> to me, yeah. I mean, and, I, and I'll get, and I'll give you. I'm, I'm going to give some an example. Like Jay Bean would walk in the training room and he'd say, "Oh my God, I, my knee is killing me. I, it is killing me." Now, in a normal situation, if somebody walks up to you and tells you something's killing him, then you know that that that's terrible. Oh my God, it's killing him. He must be dying. But that was just his word. That was his saying, and that just means, "Hey, my knee's kind of sore. I need some treatment. Maybe tape it up, and I'm ready to go." I mean, that's, that's like, that's, that's a bruise. That's a contusion. That's, that's nothing that's going to stop a guy from playing. That's what, that's what, you know, hurt is. Hurt is getting punched and you got a bruise or hurt is you slide in and get a strawberry or hurt is you got hit in the forearm with a pitch and it's sore. You can still play and you can still play at a high level when you're injured, you're injured and it affects your ability to do the job that you're capable of doing or as close to the best that you can do it. And when you're injured, then you got to be smart about it and get it fixed and take care of it so you can get back out there as soon as you can. If you try to play through an injury and, and be stupid, a, a small injury can turn into a big one. And then all of a sudden you're out two, three, four weeks instead of one or two days. You hear this a lot. You hear it on TV. They, they give you the verbiage when a player's down. Give me the, the difference between an ankle sprain and a high ankle sprain, a hernia and a sports hernia. See, these are these are well, these are phrases that are bantered about. But even even me now as a fan sitting back watching a game, well, he uh, has a high ankle sprain. Well, that means to me, man, that means that that one time when I was in Montreal and I really sprained my ankle, that must have been a high one because I physically couldn't play the next day. An ankle sprain I could probably right. tape up. A hernia, what does that mean? Ah, I'm going to be limping around a little bit. A sports hernia now. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. Yeah. I'm gonna have to lay with ice on my groin. All right, explain the explain the difference. Well, yeah. Well, a high a high ankle sprain is is actually a pretty significant injury. And what what happens a lot of time is the the bone in your leg. There's a tibia and a fibula. So there's there's two bones in your leg, and in between, when they get down lower, there's a membrane that goes between those two bones to keep those things stable. When you get a high ankle sprain, a lot of times that membrane in between. That also tears in addition to some of the ligaments around your ankle. So not only do you have instability around the ankle, you have instability around that lower section of your leg, and that's why it takes a lot longer to heal because you've damaged just more than the ligaments. And then when you just get an, an ankle sprain, ankle sprains are like grade one, two, and three. You could have a grade one ankle sprain where you might just roll it over real quick and catch it, and you might have a little bit of swelling, and you tape it up and you can play like nothing's wrong. But if you get a grade three, ankle sprain, which means that you've actually disrupted and torn the majority of the ligaments, then you're going to need some time to recover from that. So those are they're all totally different things. You can have a very mild ankle sprain, you could have a severe, or you could have a high ankle sprain. And each one of those is, you know, that's why you go and get an MRI. So then you have an idea, is it a grade one, grade two, grade three? Oh my gosh, it's a grade three plus, they got a high ankle sprain. You, you go up and tell your front office GM that, and then they're looking at, you know, six to eight weeks. That's that's not a good deal. And then, you know, hernia, you could have an inguinal hernia, which is 
is, you know, basically in the abdominal area and you have a protrusion and it's sore, you can play, you can get by with it. You don't want to go in the weight room and try and do a bunch of deadlifts and a bunch of cleans and squats because that's going to make it worse. But if you get a sports hernia, that's, that's deeper. And that's where the abdominal wall comes into play and it goes down and attaches down by your pubic bone and you can't run, you can't rotate, you, you can't even throw sometimes that's a significant injury that's got to get surgically repaired and and they it, it hasn't been but 10 12 years back where they a lot of times people had those and they didn't really know for sure what they were and sometimes they'd go and operate on their hips and then they'd come back and they weren't better and then they finally figured it out a, a gentleman back in philadelphia who's kind of the guru of sports hernia he figured that out and and started doing surgeries on all these hockey, hockey players and baseball players and then all of a sudden now, now it's an injury that is talked about a lot because now they know how to identify it. They know how to repair it. And it's very, very common in baseball. Very common. Pitch counts. Do you agree or disagree with them? And why does it seem in, in, the, in, the modern, in the modern era, why does it seem like teams now more than in you know, yesteryear, they really baby the starting pitching? Yeah, I, I, this you could talk to me and a whole lot of other people for many hours about this, but in a nutshell, I, I really disagree with with the way things are done. Uh, and I think one reason, main reason I disagree with it is is the astronomical number of injuries. It's inexcusable. And how do you explain by lessening the pitch counts, the number of injuries are higher than they've ever been with pitchers. Uh, I remember when I came to the big leagues, my first seven years in the big leagues, my, my job was, I was the clicker. I kept char, I kept, I kept the pitch, the pitch counts. I had a little clicker and the pitching coach would like in the fifth inning, he'd say, how many pitches does Randy have? And so I always got 103 and he'd go, Oh, he's good. He's he can go up to 140. And, and Randy Johnson, when you're averaged 140 pitches a game, uh, the average pitch count when I started was like 125, 130. I had Gaylord Perry my first year, Booney. He, he told me that many times he threw 185 to 200 pitches in a game. And he never, never, ever, ever wanted to come out of a game. And nobody ever asked him to come out of a game. Now, that's being ridiculous. And that's, you know, way back. And that's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate for that. But, uh, you know, I, I just, I don't understand really. It's you're coming out of games now based on statistics. Uh, I was about five years ago. I'm not going to say the name of the player. Or I'm not going to say who the manager was, but we had a, we had a starting pitcher who had gone six innings and he had only thrown 78 pitches. And he had, I believe he had 11 or 12 strikeouts and he was taken out of the game because statistically the third time around the lineup, his the batting average up to went up to about 300 so they took him out of the game and we we lost the game and i remember the manager and i had a conversation after the game and, and he asked me what i thought and i said i i know there's certain situations when you're doing that because that's what you're told or you're supposed to do but in in that situation that guy was on it tonight he was dominating and this particular pitcher usually got better the, the more pitches he threw and I, I, I would have left him in and I would have, I would have taken my chances with that guy. But, you know, it's, the baseball's different now. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not there. Uh, I know pitchers want to throw more than they do. Um, and I think, I think at some point, you know, they're going to go back and go, you know, we kind of need to get back the way, the way things used to be because there's got to be 
a way to figure out why there's so many injuries with these pitchers. And it might just be the fact that, that, that what we're doing to them from a pitch count perspective is not, is not, is not helping them. It's actually making things worse. That's interesting. And, and uh, yeah, cause you got the Nolan Ryan school of, th- you know, school of thought, which is shoot, throw in between, throw as much as you want. Uh, guy that had a pretty successful career, played a long time, and and it wasn't one of those finesse guys that finessed his way through. He was yeah. a power pitch. He was a power pitcher from start to finish, and you know yeah. that that holds a pretty good argument for for how to go about that. And I hope they do get back that to that too. And you know, it goes back to our you know, conversation. No, I want to, I wanted to say one thing is you brought Nolan's name up and I had a great relationship with Nolan. Uh, I, I got to play in some celebrity blackjack tournaments with him because of rodeo and he was very involved with Wrangler. And for many, many years, I, 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 I talked with him and I met him down at the NFR down in Vegas and, and I asked him to talk to Randy Johnson. And one of the things that Nolan told me, he, he said, as the year gone on, particularly the last half of the year, he never threw a ball off the mound except for the game. He said, because that, that wears your arm down. And, and I, I'm going to say this, Booney, because of my previous conversation. So he, he's telling Randy Johnson, and he's talking about this with me, this is the guy who holds the record for strikeouts pitched in the big leagues for 25 or 26 years. He didn't throw off bullpen uh, during, in between his starts, but he threw flat ground. So he threw the ball flat towards the catcher, squatted down, which isn't as hard on your arm. And so Randy Johnson started to do that. Now, what happens now is because they, because they, a lot of times they have six days in between and they throw less pitches, they're having guys throw two bullpens in between their starts, but they're throwing them off of a mound. So if you go back to what Nolan Ryan was saying, what, what a lot of teams and a lot of pitching coaches are having their guys do is they're throwing twice off a mound in between starts, especially in the minor leagues. You know, you might be you might be doing what Nolan Ryan's saying is you're doing more harm than good. So this is like, I mean, I go to a lot of seminars and talk at a lot of seminars, and this is a this is like a this is a three day seminar we're having a 20 minute talk about. But it's it's a fascinating thing to try to you know break down and figure out. And I think it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, and that that game inside the game. You know, you were you were talking about going to that manager five or six years ago back. Uh, when he took him out for the third time around the lineup. And I, and I just, I look at the game today and I realize you know, the game evolves. It's always going to change as time goes on that the data and the technology is going to get better and the training techniques are going to get better. But I still think the great decision makers of our generation, this generation are the ones that, that when the going gets tough and there's a tough decision to be made, they feel something in their gut and they make that decision. And, and your perfect example is third time through the lineup. You've got to know, yeah, what the stats say, whatever. But what I'm watching tonight, I know that man on the mound. I know who he is. I know his makeup. I know when he has that look in his eye that you don't mess with him and you don't take him out. I don't care what the stats say. Now, yeah. a rookie, a guy that doesn't have a track record, maybe you stick to the data. But those certain guys, right. that look, that feeling, I think the great ones, and, and especially the great managers, they have that uncanny ability to make that gut reaction in a in a in crunch time, and not just rely on a computer or something like that. That's just my opinion, yeah. but uh, it, it goes to that. that it's a good opinion. And here's here's one more thing I want to throw out. For, you know, you can think about this and everybody else. So I I said this comment to somebody 
when they took somebody out in that same situation because he told me that the third time through the lineup, they hit 301 off the guy. And I said, yeah, they do. But they also fail 70% of the time. 70% of the time they fail, 30% of the time they succeed. And what you just said, you see the fire in that guy's eye. You see, you see him on that mound. This is my day. This is, I got it today. And they have no chance. You got to know that. And they're going to fail the 70% of the time that time. And that's, that's what you got to know. And what you said, that's the great managers right there. All right. I'm going to give the fans out there a pretty cool story. And, and it was, uh, you know, I came up with the Mariners in 1990. I got traded away in, in uh, 93. Went to Cincinnati and, and Atlanta and San Diego. I had a knee injury. And I, and I sat down at the beginning of August for the remainder of the last seven weeks of the season. That offseason, I signed a one-year contract with Seattle Mariners for the 2001 season. I'm, I'm reunited with Griffin. So Griff calls me on the phone. I go down to my local in Orlando. I get my, uh, I get my checkup, sign the contract, come to spring training. And I'm taking, I'm taking ground balls. And you remember this and uh, balls are going oh, through I my leg. I balls tell the story every day. <laughs> balls are going through my legs and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be cool about it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not really trying out here, but I'm like missing balls. I never miss balls. I'm missing the ball and trying to play it off like I'm cool. Meanwhile, my knee injury from the year before, we just didn't treat it correctly. You take it from there. Well, I'm, I'm going to back up one step before that. So when you came to spring training, you, you, you saw your doctor down there in Orlando and he said you were good. So the Mariners signed you. So now you come to have your spring training physical in, uh, in Peoria and, uh, our team doctor, uh, our orthopedist, wanted to fail you because your knee was not right. Your muscles were atrophied. He was very concerned about everything going on with your leg. And he said, you know, this is not good. This is not going to be a good thing. I, I think we need to fail his physical. And back then, you can fail a guy's physical. And if it's a medical thing, then the club can, in, in, can get insurance back on your contract. And he's going, you know, I think we ought to fail the physical. I don't think this guy's going to be able to play. And I, during this meeting, I said, you know what? I know this guy. This guy is a really, really hard worker. Give me, give me three weeks with this guy, three weeks. And I bet you'll make progress. And we got six weeks in six weeks. I think he'll be good. And they're going, they're, they're going, okay, well, we'll see. I don't know. And so they said, okay, we'll give you three weeks. So, so then I had this conversation with Brett and I said, uh, you're about to meet the blue pad and, and you know what I'm talking about. And yep. so we started doing these exercises uh, that are, they're balance related exercises. They produce stability. They produce uh, muscle, muscle uh, recognition, proprioception. You work your ankles, you work your calf, you work your knees, your quads, your hips, your core. And we started doing them. And when Brett started, he could do like five or six. Well, by the time we got done in spring, he was doing three or four sets of 40 to 50. And all of a sudden, he wasn't missing ground balls. He wasn't doing anything. His leg was as good as it was before. And we did a lot of other stuff. But the the little blue pad was the pad that made Moon all the money. I believe that's what you've told me many times. 
That's right. And I'll tell you what it, it is. And, and, you know, I make light of it, but that was a, a pivotal point in my career. And you came up with those exercises and got me on the table. And we did that resistance work. We didn't do it with weights. We did it with yep. resistance. And you would sit there and just hold my knee. And, and I remember I was kind of scared at the time because my it, it seemed like one of my I think it was my left leg or my right. I forget. <laughs> we ended up hurting both knees in the next five years. But and also I want to tell everybody out there, all that tape you see in the, in the Olympics on the, on the beach with, with the beach volleyball players, that, that kind of styling cool tape that all the athletes are wearing today. We were the originals. We brought Iggy son from Japan, brought it over. And you guys introduced me to Kinesio tape. And you remember that Kinesio tape every day. We had our strips ready to go before the game. We'd put it on and and throughout the years, those those final five years for me and see, I don't remember time to time. I'd be like, Griff, I don't think I think my knee's good enough that I don't need that tape. And then after the bottom of the you know bottom of the first roll around, no, get the tape on. It, it became my crutch. But it was a real thing. That kinesio tape really worked. And uh, you were a huge part. No, and, you- and like I said, yeah. I make light of it. Like it was a funny time. It was really a pivotal time in my career. And and you were a huge part of rehabbing that knee and getting it to where it needed to get. And, and uh, man, thank goodness yeah, I, we had that, we had that yeah, remedy. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I tell that story all the time because I mean, if, if you look, if you look at what you did and where you came from, cause you were, you have, you got a doctor who's an orthopedic doctor who's been a pro doctor in football and baseball telling the front office that they probably need to release you because they don't think you're going to make it back and you bust your butt in spring training and you go on and you hit i think 37 homers 141 ribbies and you hit like 335 i believe and you won a gold glove and you went to the all-star game i mean that, that's that's shocking no one no one does no one goes from getting released in spring training to doing that no one that's that's like like a joke year and and you did that and it was you did everything. That's why I loved this, working with you. You and Buner were. You would walk in and say, "What am I doing today? Kill me. Work my butt off so that that I can play." And that's why when you're an athletic trainer and you got somebody that wants to work, and then the reward an athletic trainer gets is when you work somebody and they go out and do the kind of things that you did that year. It was like every day watching you do that. You know, it's like it's like my highlight is. Look at him. Look at him go because you worked so hard. And then I remember the other thing that was great about that is Cammy came over and Cameron had some of the similar issues that you did. And so did Macklemore. And they saw how good you were doing. And they're going, man, I need to do those things. And then I don't know if you remember this, Booney. You went to the All-Star game and, and you taped Jason Giambi's knee. Do you remember that? Yes, I did. He was killing it. And then and the trainer for the Yankees called me up and said, what the heck? You got one of your players taping my players <laughs> with this tape from Japan? What the heck is going on? I don't even know what this stuff is. And, and who, what is your player doing? And then he goes, but my player said it was amazing and it helped him. And I, now I got to I got to figure out how to do it. So I had to. I had to tell him what it was, and we ended up making – back then there weren't cell phones, but we, my video, Carl Hamilton made a video, and we sent the video to him of me taping your knee with that tape, and I sent him a bunch of that tape. 
and and he ended up taping Jason's knee. And uh, I learned about that tape in in 1994 when I went to Japan, and I started using that in 1995. And then when we were lucky enough to get our first Japanese trainer in 1999, and he really knew how to use it with what I knew and what he knew, we were able to really put that to work and. Uh, it, it just made a big difference in having that that Eastern style culture kind of implementing with what we were doing, and I think it made a difference for a few years on some of the guys on our team. Oh, I can say a hundred percent difference. It, it definitely was a difference. How did we not benefit from that, Griff? How did we not have a piece of that Kinesio action? We were the originals. <laughs> Nobody was doing it well, except for the I, Seattle Mariners. Now you see it. Now it's like the hip thing to do. High school guys are wearing it. Yep. Oh, and I, I got something out of it because that company ended up flying me to Japan about 25 times to go over there and do sports medicine lectures and seminars and stuff for it. So I got a little bit out of it. At least I, I didn't ever get any money, but at least I got to go to Japan a bunch and have some good food and talk to, talk to a lot of Japanese athletic trainers. So that was good. Do you remember this story? I'm, I'm going to switch subjects to Lou Pinella, the one and only. Um, do you remember when I was a kid? And, and remember, I was on the shuttle. Lou would bring me to the big league, send me down. Me and Lou would go into his office and fight a little bit, and he'd send me down. Then he'd call me up. And we were in Detroit, and I hit him in the head during – in the middle uh, – it was between innings when, you know, when first baseman throws the ground balls, the shortstop, second baseman, third baseman. Do you remember that? Yep. I threw it. I threw yes, it I over. <laughs> I threw it. Oh, I, I think it was Dave Magadan. Tino was the regular first baseman. Tino had a day off. Dave Magadan was playing first. I don't think Dave was in a good mood. I had just flown out. And you know me back then, I had that temper. And I took this ground ball and I threw it and I saw it just soaring. It was old Detroit Stadium, <laughs> small confines, small dugout. Next thing you know, it was like everything went in slow motion. Magadan didn't jump for the ball. It didn't even try to catch it. And it just one hop. (laughs) Right. It was one hop. It hit Lou in the head. He goes down. I remember Omar Vizquel, he was a shortstop. He came over. He said, Booney, you hit the skipper. (laughs) And I remember I said, you know what, Omar? And and probably an expletive was thrown. You know, blank him. He deserves it the way he treats me. <laughs> and I remember coming in. I remember coming into the dugout, and you've got Lou sprawled out on the on the yeah. in the dugout, with this big lump on his head on the bench, and nobody will tell. And, and Lou's walking around when he when he gets upright again. He's walking around. Who who the hell hit me? <laughs> you got Blowers, Edgar, Omar, Magadan, and nobody's saying a word. They're like Brett. <laughs> Brett gets enough crap from Lou. He can't have this right now. And I remember I yeah. had to come clean yeah. with him after the game. I walked into his office. I said, "Skip, I got to come clean. I'm the one that hit you." And he's like, "How, oh, son?" I. <laughs> He goes, I yeah. know you didn't mean to hit me, but gosh, damn it, son. He hit me right now. <laughs> he had this big yeah, welt. he had a big old it, huge welt. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Yeah, I okay. That. Oh, that is – that sticks with it. I mean, we all have a billion loose stories. Do you have any – give me your favorite one. Well, I have I have some I have some different ones. I, I have one that's out of utmost respect, so – Remember, I said they had 18 managers, so now they hire Lou, and they hire Lou, and then all of a sudden, like two days later, I get a phone call from this number that I don't even know, 
and uh, I pick it up, and it's like nine o'clock in Seattle, so it's twelve o'clock in Tampa, and it's Lou, and he goes, uh, "Hey, this is Lou. I'm the manager, and I got your number from Woody, and I want to talk to you about some stuff." And I go, "Okay." And he goes, "Have you got some time?" And I go, "Yeah, I got all the time you need." We talked for three hours. He went over every single player on the team. He goes, I want you to talk to me about every player. I want you to tell me about them, every single guy. And he would ask me questions like about every guy. And I hung up the phone and I went, man, I have never in my life heard of anybody doing that. He was so prepared and he wanted to know so much. And he told me that day, he said, in three years, this team will be in the playoffs. Booney, that was 92. In 95, we went to the playoffs. So that was, that was like an amazing thing. But one of the, Lou, Lou had an amazing temper and it was comical at times and he would do things. And if, if it's okay, I'll tell two really funny stories. One of them is, is hilarious. But so one of the, one of the first, it was the first year in the old Cleveland stadium, we had just lost a, a, a game we shouldn't have lost. And, and he was livid and he had taken his hat and had thrown his hat and when you used to walk up that tunnel, the tunnel had boardwalks on. So when you'd walk, you'd kind of bounce. So it was almost like you were like on a little bit of a trampoline. Well, on the right-hand side of the wall, all the way up, and it was about 100 feet up to the top, there, was, there were light bulbs. And, you know, they didn't have shades on or anything. They are just light bulbs that would light that tunnel all the way up. I don't know what Lou was thinking, but he thought he could kick one of those light bulbs and break the bulb. And I'm walking right behind him. The next thing I know, I see... This, I don't know how old he was then, 55-year-old man, tried to jump up in the air and kick this light bulb. Well, he only got about two and a half feet off the ground, and he landed straight on his butt, and he bounced like three times, and now he's blown out his back. And I picked him up, and I asked him, what are you trying to do? And he, oh, I was trying. I was going to kick every light bulb all the way up the, the tunnel. <laughs> and there was probably like 60 light bulbs. And so we got him up in there, and, and I told him, Lou, I don't think your vertical was good enough to jump up and break all those light bulbs. And so that was the first thing I knew he was – probably not going to have a, an easy go at losses. And then in the kingdom, we had uh, left for the all-star break. And during the all-star break, they had decided they were going to put brand new carpet in the kingdom, which in our training room in our clubhouse, which was probably the first time this had ever happened. And uh, our clubhouse guy named Henry Gonzali, every Tuesday night, he had what's called taco Tuesday. And uh, so he's got the tacos spread out after the game. He's got a little crock pot with nacho cheese in it. And he's got nachos on there and burritos and tacos. And Dan Wilson's sitting over in one corner and Griffey and Buner and Edgar on the other side. And we had lost four or five games. And we had lost this game. And Lou, Lou came in the clubhouse and he had his fungo and he was screaming and yelling. And he was airing everybody out and we're having a big team meeting. And then that, that crock pot caught his eye. And it was like, you, you knew what was going to happen. He, he like saw it and all of a sudden his eyes got big. And next thing you know, he took a swing at the crock pot and it exploded and cheese went everywhere. Cheese went all over the carpet. The little thing that was underneath the crock pot that was the little uh, candle deal with kerosene in it went on the floor and it started to burn. And Lou's still talking. I look over to the left and Dan Wilson's sitting over in the corner and he's got 
nacho cheese all over his face, all over his uniform. And then I look over at Griffey, and he's laughing so hard, he's taking his hat off, and he's covering his face. And then next, I look, Edgar's laughing, Jay's laughing, everybody's laughing, the carpet's burning, Dan's got cheese on his face, and we're, everyone's dying. And then, and then Lou kept airing everybody out, and then he walked into his office, and somebody ran over and got, uh, they got a carton of milk to put the, put the fire out and then everybody just burst out laughing. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen when it was supposed to be the most serious thing possible because we were all getting aired out. But Lou turned it into a carnival and a comedy by busting the cheese and starting the clubhouse on fire. I mean, I, I, people, you know, I'm sure in your travels, that's the main thing that comes up is give me a loose. I mean, this guy, people don't understand what we witnessed, how awesome <laughs> <laughs> that man is and how when, he, you know, they I think it's thrown around a little loosely today. Like, you know, when he was born, they they broke the mold. No, you don't yeah. understand. Unless you've lived with Lou Pinella no. for a year, yeah. well, you'll realize yeah. they really have broke the mold when Lou was born. <laughs> yeah. Nobody. Well, I, I've I never met I a man kept, like him. I, I, I kept a journal for 27 years and I wrote down all the funny things. I promise you. There's at least a hundred of them, or Lou. At least he's a hundred. He's not he's more. There, there are so many in there. He's unbelievable, and to this day, I, I got to play for a lot of great managers, and uh, you know, Bruce Bochy's one of couldn't can't be a better guy. You know, I played for Bobby Cox, and I played for uh, Davey John, I, and I played. I was lucky enough to play for a lot. Let's just put it that way. But when push comes to shove, who's your favorite? <laughs> It's not even a question. Yeah. It's Lou Pinella. Yeah. Lou Pinella. Yeah. Well, that's a, I mean, I had 18 of them and he's by, by far my favorite. And, and, uh, he was, he was tough on me, but at the end of the day, he always told me he loved me. And at the end of the day, I loved him. And, and, uh, it was a, it was an honor and a privilege to, to be able to, to be around him for that long. How's the game changed since you started in 83 to you just recently walked away? Um, I, I, I know that, that the players are, are better athletes. I know they're, they're in better shape. Um, the thing I question sometimes is, do they love the game as much as their predecessors do? Uh, I, I, I wonder that sometimes I really don't know if they, they truly really live, die, breathe and love the game the way uh, it was from the guys before. That's the biggest thing that I noticed. And, and watching the game is different. It's, it's a lot different to watch the game now. The shift, I, I, I'm so glad it's not going to be there. Uh, I, I, I don't like the shift. I don't like the fact that the natural ability sometimes of the players are diminished by what they're asked to do. They're not allowed to just play the game. Uh, they're, in some respects, I think you might be turning – some of them into kind of robotic players. Uh, I just, I don't, I don't like that. I like to see the athleticism. I like to see the players do what they're capable of doing and use their natural instincts and, and show their, their development and their athleticism. And uh, that, that's the biggest thing for me. And then um, I, I kind of wish, I wish they would, and I, I wish they would go back to where uh, they would play each team in their own league uh, a home and away twice rather than playing 20 games against the same team in the division. I, I don't really like that. And that, that's, that's coming from when I was actually there because you, you see each. Particularly enjoy that. 
don't particularly enjoy enjoy doing that. I think when we had more of a balanced schedule, I think that was fairer. I think that gave everybody a better sense of where they actually stood. Uh, like like this year, I think that the National League or the American League East is going to be a, a, a pretty tough league, and they're going to be playing you know 80 games against each other in that league. Uh, I wish I wish, and I've heard that's going to change next year, but I, I wish they would go back to the more balanced schedule. What are you most proud of? For myself or for my my team? No, what, you've, no most proud of you. You. You were in this game a long time. Um, what do you walk away and say, I, you I, know? Well, go ahead. I, I was asked that. I was asked that by a, a newspaper guy a while ago. And I'm, I'm most proud of that every day I went to work. I love my job more than anything in the world. And I think I had the best job in the world. I, I absolutely loved going to work. I loved doing what I do. I love the challenge of taking somebody who was broke down and, and finding a way to figure out how to get them back on the field. And then when they did get back on the field and they hit that game winning home run, or they came in and saved the game or they pitched the game and they come over and they shake your hand and say, thank you. That's, that's what I'm proud of. I'm, I'm proud that, that I always, I feel like I always found a way to help, help those guys. Uh, I'm proud. I, I'm proud that I stayed with the same team, uh, which According to my daughters, was not smart, but uh, I was very loyal to the Seattle Mariners. I could have gone to four other teams. I was offered jobs four other times, and I stayed. So I'm proud that I I stayed with Seattle for for 38 years. And uh, I'm like, I'm like the Edgar of athletic trainers. I I never went anywhere. I stayed with Seattle the whole time, and I got to go to four All Star games, which again was an amazing thing. But the thing that I'm most disappointed about is. Only got to go to four playoffs and never, never got to go to a World Series. I mean, I would have loved to, to have done that, uh, just to experience that. But I mean, the journey I had and, and the joy that I had going to work every day, to the ballpark every day, and working with the players, you know, that's something that I'll go to my grave with with a big smile on my face. Rick Griffin. This has been awesome, man. It's been fun catching up. I, I think uh, the listeners are really going to love this kind of behind the scene. We walked them through pretty good and had a little little time. Congratulations on an, on an awesome career. I know you're still working a little bit behind the scenes. You kind of been a, uh, still doing that, but but uh, I appreciate you and I appreciate our time together and and the ups and downs and and like I opened with you patched me together more than a few times and what we do <laughs> each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we bring back the voice of the podcast Dan Levy Dano oh yeah <laughs> what do you got for us <laughs> all right so this question Rick, comes from dan levy here in chicago that would be me and i gotta know this give me two of your best brett boone stories <laughs> well oh like I he's said, got him in his I, journal I, I inter- and i've got the time nice, i can be nice I, 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 I remember. I, I remember right away that I learned that Brett was different than a lot of other players. Uh, I knew Brett's dad a little bit because in Yuma, Arizona, and Palm Springs, Arizona, a couple times we would go down there and play, and I would go for runs in the morning, and I would run into Brett's dad, and he would be running with little d- dumbbells and wrist, 
wristbands and and uh we got to talk and he said oh i got a couple pretty good sons i hope they're going to be in the big league someday and they're going to be you know they're going to be good players so finally brett gets drafted to to the seattle mariners and he ends up making it to the big leagues and i remember the first time where i realized this is not your normal player so he gets called up to the big leagues and i i believe it was the first time in the lineup, and I believe Lou put him batting seventh, or he was batting seventh in the lineup. And uh, I remember I was standing next to him when he was looked at the lineup, and he goes, Boone doesn't bat seventh. Boone does not hit seventh. Why is Boone hitting seventh? And I go, oh, this is good. I like this guy. First day in the big leagues, and he's not happy that he's hitting seventh. He wants to hit second or third or fourth so that was that was the first thing i realized this guy is definitely a little bit different and and the the (laughs) next thing about brett is brett had plantar fasciitis one year so bad that when he when he sprinted he was perfectly fine but when he had to slow down i swear to you it looked like a deer running through the forest that had been wounded it was the ugliest most painful thing in the world and we did everything we could. We tried everything we could to get this thing to go away. It wouldn't go away, but he was in the middle of having this phenomenal year and he would not come out of the game. And, and Lou would walk up to me. He goes, I can't stand watching this guy run. I can't stand watching him. He's playing good, but every time he runs and then the media asked me, why am I keep playing him? Cause he looks so terrible. And I told Lou, I said, well, my advice is when he, when he starts to run, just look away or close your eyes and don't, don't watch him. And, he he said, okay, well, I'll try that. And that didn't work. And so then I, I finally had to ask Brett because the worst thing is when he would, when he, if he hit a double, he would go into second base and when he'd, he'd have to, to kind of slow down, the last 10 feet were torturous to watch. So I finally asked him, I said, could you just do me a favor and start sliding before when you get into second base so you don't look so bad and it doesn't hurt so bad? And he did the same thing. He said, well, Boone doesn't slide. Boone doesn't slide if he doesn't have to slide. So I'm not doing that. So he was he was a, a joy and a pleasure. He was stubborn sometimes, but he was if you ask him to work, he, he can outwork anybody. So I, I enjoyed a lot with uh, my time with him. We had a lot of fun. I just enjoy that he just refers to himself in the third person this whole time. So that, to me, is, well, there's, is there's better. Only, there's only two players that do that. There's only two, Ricky Henderson and Brett Boone. They're the only two. <laughs> <laughs> That's and I, cool. and I, I had Ricky. I'll tell you real fast. I'll tell you my Ricky story. So Ricky Henderson got traded over. He's only there for two months. And I, I met him at an all-star game and I stretched his shoulder out of the one in an all-star game. But he never remembered that. He had no clue who I was. And I told him, he goes, oh, no, I don't remember that. So every day he would come to the ballpark at 1.30 and he would, he would walk in the training room and he would look at me. I still don't ever think he knew my name. And he said, uh, hey, Ricky needs his hammies rubbed. Ricky needs his shoulder stretched. Ricky needs his back worked on. So after about 10 days or a week of this, I'm waiting for him every day because he was always there at 1.30. And my nephew's favorite two players were George Brett and Ricky Henderson. Well, I had gotten him assigned baseball by, by George Brett. And so he asked me, would you get me a Ricky Henderson ball? And I said, oh, yeah, that won't be a problem. For players, they don't mind signing you know, for the guys on the team. So he came in. While I was rubbing his hamstrings, I'm rubbing him, you know, working on him, and we're talking. And I say, hey, Ricky, will you, would you mind doing me a favor? Uh, would you sign a baseball for my nephew? And he goes, oh, Ricky doesn't sign balls. Ricky doesn't sign. And I go, what? He goes, no, Ricky doesn't sign. And I, I, that's it. I dropped it. 
So the next day when he came into the ballpark, I wasn't standing right there waiting for him in the training room at one thirty. I was in my office sitting at my computer, and I knew he was coming. And and he came around the corner, and he goes, ah! and I looked up at him, and he goes, hey, Ricky needs his hammies rubbed. And I go, uh, Ricky doesn't rub hammies. <laughs> and he goes, what? And I go, I go, Ricky doesn't rub hammies, man. Sorry, I don't do hammies. And he looked at me, and he goes, oh, you want me to sign the ball? And I go, yeah. And so he signed the ball. So that was that was a fun story with Ricky. That is amazing. I would be reluctant if I did not ask you for one Ken Griffey Jr. story. Oh man, he's. I mean, I, I, geez, I got so many. I, I mean, I don't know if you want a, a, a golfing story, you want a baseball story, you want a training room story. He just, he was, he was probably. He got to the ballpark every day at twelve thirty, and he held court for like five hours every day. He sat in front of his locker and he would talk to the media, he would talk to the players, he'd talk to the clubhouse kids, and then he'd come in the training room, and then he'd do the same thing in there. And he was just, he was great. I, I mean, I, I'll just say, I mean, I, I believe that I have been so fortunate. I, I mean, I have had some of the most amazing baseball players that I've ever played play in front of me and to watch Ken Griffey Jr. play from the time he was 17 years old till the last game that he ever played in Major League Baseball absolutely by far the best the smoothest the most athletic the most charismatic player uh, and no one ever had more fun playing than him to be able to watch that every single day was an absolute joy. And uh, I know people saw Willie Mays play for a lot, but I got to watch Ken Griffey Jr. play for, I don't know, 12, 13 years. That, that's, I mean, that's a story in itself. I got, to, I got to watch that guy play every day. And he had a couple of tough injuries with me, and uh, he broke his wrist, and the doctor said he's going to be back in eight weeks, and I told him you're going to be back in five. Five weeks and two days he played, and he hit a home run his first day back. Uh, hard worker, man, hard, hard worker. But what a what a pleasurable guy and I had you know I had Buner I had Edgar I had Alex Rodriguez I had Randy Johnson I had Jamie Moyer is a feat among all baseball players to go and do what he was able to do so I was just I got to see a lot of great great baseball players thank you so much for coming on the podcast sir we appreciate it well it's my pleasure and I have listened to many of the Boone podcasts and uh, we'll continue to do so That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.